interesting question few people ask. We routinely hear about how terrorists become radicalized, but we rarely ever hear about terrorists who decide to call it quits. What does cause terrorists to stop perpetuating violence? This is the question for which Julie Chernoff Huang seeks answers in her new book, Why Terrorists Quit. Julie Chernoff Huang is an associate professor of political science and international relations at Goucher College. Over the course of six years, Chernofuang conducted more than 100 interviews with current and former leaders and followers of radical Islamist groups in Indonesia. Using what she learned firsthand from these radicals, she examines the complex personal and emotional reasons why terrorists stop being terrorists. I'm Jonathan Hall, and this is 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. Hello, Julie. Welcome to 1869. Hello. We're, we're very excited about your forthcoming book, Why Terrorists Quit, The Disengagement of Indonesian Jihadists. And we wanted to start off right off the bat. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by the term disengagement? Okay, thank you. Um, disengagement occurs when a member of a terrorist group, a radical movement, a gang, or a cult chooses to cease participation in acts of violence. So fundamentally, it's about behavior in contrast to de-radicalization, which would be about the delegitimation of the ideology that underpins that behavior. Okay, okay. And what does your research reveal about the reasons for disengagement? There's not just one factor, but there's a multitude of factors. Well, the linchpin of successful disengagement and reintegration, according to my research, is the establishment of an alternative social network of friends and mentors and family members as well as um, priority shifts, where one's focus and locus of attention go um, from prioritizing the movement to um, one's family, furthering one's education, and obtaining gainful and sustained employment. So those are the first two factors, and they often interact with one another. The second two factors, and these we see far more in the literature, are disillusionment with tactics, um, so in Indonesia most frequently bombing, um, disillusionment with leaders, uh, disillusionment with one's own role in the group, um, and we see disillusionment cited a lot in the literature. It carries less weight in Indonesia, although it often it often comes about and is talked about as, as an opening. Um, but it rarely leads to disengagement unless it's reinforced by other factors. Um, and alongside disillusionment, we have a second factor, which is rational assessment of costs and benefits of continued use of violence. So disillusionment and cost-benefit analysis often interact with one another. Um, and the establishment of the alternative social network and priority shifts interact with one another. And in many cases, all four interact with one another and they push a person towards disengagement. They push a person in the case, especially of um, 
the establishment of the alternative social network and the priority shifts towards reintegration and to the conceptualization of a post-jihad identity of a post-extremist identity and to the establishment of a new identity that is a hybrid of what one has taken from the experience and one's new sense of self. Great, great, makes sense, makes sense. So you interviewed uh, some 55 jihadists. How did you go about finding them? That's a good question. Um, I worked with a network of guides, and these were largely people I had known from earlier research on earlier projects, and they were starting their own research projects, and they were starting um, NGOs like the Institute for International Peacebuilding. And when they saw the initial direction I wanted to go, they said, well, we will help you and then referred me to other guides. With regard to the 23 from POSO, I worked with two other colleagues and the three of us went to POSO. And um, these two scholars, Iksan Ali Fauci from Paramedina Foundation and the late Reza Bahangabayan from Gajamata University and I, we, we did this research together and it resulted in an article in 2013 called When We Were Separated, We Began to Think for Ourselves Again, The Disengagement of Jihadists in Poso. And we there worked with a former student of Rizal's who was a human rights activist and she had connections. So in each case, it was working with people that I trusted, who had networks in the groups of people who they trusted and who trusted them. And so that's how I found them. And then sometimes I would be asking um, hey, do you have a relationship with so-and-so? But sometimes it would be them suggesting, hey, um, I have a relationship with so-and-so. I could facilitate this for you. And so there was a back and forth. And sometimes after trust had been established, I would ask some of the people I was interviewing, who else I, should I be talking to? And they would make suggestions. Nice, nice. So they made an introduction as well. Yes. Well, what, why go back to the same people again and again? Well, I think because you need to establish trust. If you're going to do this research well, you can't just go once. You have to establish trust. And you don't always establish trust the first time. But if you go and you interview someone and then you read the transcript and you realize there's holes and contradictions in the interviews and you go back again and you can ask them about those holes and contradictions. Or you read something that's at odds with what they said or someone referenced something about them and, um, you go back and you talk to them about that. And maybe the next year you go back again, but you don't do an interview, you just sit down and have a coffee mm. or you, you run into them um, and you express interest in their life and you ask about their children um, and you ask about what they're doing. And not everything has to be a formal interview. Over time, they begin to trust you and their life circumstances change. And you get to see different aspects of them as they come to feel that they can share those aspects. And that is why I would say going back again and again is vital. It's very hard for a person to tell the same story to you over and over again for five years. You're going to get nuances. You're going to get 
um, a fuller picture of who they are and how this journey evolved for them. That's great. Now, obviously, there's there's policy implications for disengagement of in Indonesian jihadists, um, but there's also policy implications for jihadists and disengagement of terrorists worldwide. So we think of you know ISIS, for for example. Do you think of patterns you identified in your book can offer insights for how to re-engage those who were initially drawn to ISIS, perhaps went to Syria to fight, but have now returned and are somewhat disillusioned by what they experienced in Syria? Well, I think one thing to note is that one of the reasons in my research on groups like Jamazlamiya and Mujahideen Kompak and Tanurunutu and Mujahideen Kaimanya and these groups, disillusionment, while it is, has such a strong weight in the literature, it was often a, an initial opening, but it wasn't a decisive factor unless other factors reinforced it over time. And that's a really important thing to understand about the domestically oriented groups. ISIS, we're seeing people come home disillusioned with disillusionment being a driver that deserves more weight. And that is because um, some are coming home disillusioned with the quality of life, some with the barbarism that they witnessed, um, the fact that they were not fighting the Assad regime, um, that the promised quality of life um, never materialized. There were, there's, so this is going to be something that is more prevalent than past experiences. I would say that there are four things that I would identify that the Indonesian civil society organizations and government, be it DENSIS, 88, BNPT, that everyone does need to be doing. And the first is to develop expertise in the target community. So when somebody is coming home, there is a dossier on this person, the people working on that person's case need to know that dossier inside and out. And better yet, they need to know the dossiers of the people who went at the same time as these people and the people who are coming home at the same time as these people. They need to be looking for patterns. If there is no dossier, they need to be able to build a relationship enough with these with people that they are able to, um, to share aspects of their life, why they went, why they came home, what the motivators were, what their experiences were. They need to develop that expertise. And on the basis of that, that expertise, they need to then build trust. They need to build relationships mm -hmm. with the returning, um, with, return, with the returnees. And in the Indonesian case, also the deportees, the people who tried to go to Syria and got turned back at various junctures, often at the Turkish border. There's um, at least 500 uh, deportees who have come back. Um, as of Solahuddin's numbers, there's 86 um, returnees um, that, are, that have been noted. There's likely more. Um, but there's 86 that are known. Okay. So second aspect is focusing on life skills training and professional development. The people who went and joined ISIS, um, they 
oftentimes they sold, they sold what they had. They thought that they were moving to the caliphate. They sold what they had. Um, they sold their homes. Wow. They sold their vehicles. Um, they sold their property. So they're coming back with far less than they left with. Nothing. Uh, and they may be coming back with nothing. Wow. And so as a result of that, figuring out where their skill sets lie, not imposing a program on them, but figuring out where their skill sets lie and offering them professional development opportunities in those skill sets to enhance those skill sets and then to get back on their feet. This is very important. Um, perhaps small grants to facilitate that, to get a business up and running, um, to start a new business, um, to buy back into a business. Um, this is important, facilitating those priority shifts. The government, civil society can have a very sustainable impact by facilitating priority shifts. Make someone too busy to want to go back. Third thing that's so important for the ISIS return, for ISIS deportees and returnees is they may be estranged from their families. People who went, they may be estranged from their families. They may have family still in Syria. They also may have family that they have alienated since going and now they're coming back. They may have experienced real significant trauma. So there needs to be counseling, counseling for the children so that they can deal with some of the traumas that they may have witnessed on the ground. Um, if they were in prison so that they can address that play therapy for the children. Mm. Um, counseling to rebuild frayed family ties, counseling for the women to figure out what, you know, what their next steps are, counseling for the men who may have fought, counseling for the men who went there and came home disillusioned. Um, and it has to be more than a month. Right yeah, now, yeah, social affairs has um, a halfway house and they offer counseling, but it averages about a month. And these, this is likely going to require a much larger investment. And finally, just the small moves, making sure that everyone has an ID card, making sure that um, there's money to pay for school fees so that the kids who are coming back can go back to school. Also monitoring them to make sure that they're not trying to radicalize other people. Hmm. Um, aftercare, just these are all things that the book, issues that the book raises that can easily be applied to Indonesian deportees and returnees um, coming home. Great. If you were asked to provide advice on how to best facilitate disengagement of Islamist militants, what would you emphasize the most? I think I would say the emphasis needs to be on life skills training and professional development. Yeah. yeah. Um, it should be done locally in different localities because the needs of um, uh, disengaging and reintegrating jihadists who lives in Lamangan are going to be different from one living in Poso. Sure. Um, it needs to be an intentional, there needs to be needs assessments, there needs to be outcomes assessment, there is, needs to be retooling. If a program is if a program fails, there needs to be assessment and retooling and making it better and going back in and figuring out how to offer these 
development of these skill sets so one can work to construct that post-group identity and that post-jihad identity and that post-extremist identity. Yeah, you had mentioned the, the um, building uh, trust and establishing relationships and, and giving skill sets to jihadists and terrorists to reintegrate themselves back in society. I was fascinated to hear that, you know, Denmark has a pretty successful program. Could you tell us a little bit about that? The Danish program is, um, it provides counseling, it provides opportunities to further one's education, but they also, it provides job training, but they also realized that if someone doesn't have a home, um, then all of this is for naught. So they also provide housing, uh, help with housing. So this gets, helps them get back on their feet. And it helps, nice. it helps them get back on their feet um, in a way that the Indonesian programs currently do not. Mm -hmm. Which groups in Indonesia are doing the good work in your opinion? I would say um, on a, the groups doing the best work are doing it on a very small scale. Mm -hmm. So for example, the Institute for International Peacebuilding makes intensive investments in jihadists who reach out to them in Indonesian Islamist extremists who reach out to them hmm. and they build relationships with them while they're in prison and then when they get out of prison they help them get back on their feet by providing professional development opportunities um, in some cases based on their skill sets in some cases where a person might have a weak skill set um, by helping them to develop a skill set and after a few years, once they have close relationships, then they might push against their, them on certain aspects of their thinking. But this is a disengagement and reintegration program more so than a de-radicalization program. Um, in total, they've helped about 15 people disengage and reintegrate. Um, but this is a good program. I'd also highlight Ali Fausi, uh, who is a former member of uh, Jamal Islamiyah and former member of Mujahideen Kompak, established a mutual aid society in Lamongan, which um, not only provided a study circle where um, veterans of the Mindanao, um, uh, returned foreign fighters from Mindanao, so Indonesians who fought in Mindanao, Indonesians who fought in Afghanistan, Indonesians who fought in Ambon and Poso, and um, also families of imprisoned uh, terrorists can come together. They can have study circles where they discuss some of their previously held views. They do goat breeding together. Um, they can help pay for school fees for um, children, uh, the children of the det of, um, detained terrorists. Um, so this is another interesting small-scale program. It's promising. Um, it's promising. It is. INSEP, um, which is the um, Indonesian Institute for Social Empowerment, they, they do some small-scale programs that, that may move the needle a little bit. Um, they um, go into some of the toughest prisons and they said, hey, you know, they say, 
okay, we, we have some programs we set up and, you know, it could be calligraphy, it could be making yogurt, it could be studying the Quran. They're trained psychologists. Many of them have a Muhammadiyah background, so Indonesia's second largest Islamic mass organization. And they go in and through the process of socializing, they're effectively um, enabling these people to socialize and interact with the other. And these experience, these, this, these kinds of experiences they may move the needle a little bit for for a few people. Yeah, yeah. it certainly doesn't hurt. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. Um, do you know of any uh, disengagement programs in the U.S. that are doing good work? Well, um, I think for um, the far right extremists, life after hate, um, Christian Picciolini's organization definitely. Um, deserve some credit for what they're doing in um, helping facilitate the disengagement of uh, far-right ultranationalists. I think for Islamic extremist, extremists and ISIS returnees, Minnesota is doing interesting things. Hmm. Um, there is a, a program that has, has gotten some news about, um, which is also based on this idea that first you get to know someone and you build trust. Um, and they don't start lecturing moral theological arguments um, with ISIS deportees or returnees, but instead they, they try to, or people who are thinking of going to join ISIS, they might inject ideas and problems into their thinking. Oh, if you go to Syria, um, for example, um, if you go to Syria, you, you're going to require resources that could go to the Syrians. So you could stay here and help the Syrians by, um, by raising funds for charity or raising awareness. Mm -hmm. um, and so injecting ideas like that, complicating, problematizing. Also, they try to remind the, um, um, the deportee or returnee or aspiring member of ISIS about what they like, the things that they like to do um, before they got enamored in the movement. Um, and get them reconnected with those prior communities and reconnected with those prior activities. And, and that's interesting. That's something that these kinds of things are, are not, they're, they're very intentional and they, they are likely to have more of an impact than going into a prison and, and wagging your finger and lecturing about what the Quran does or does not say. Yeah. Instead, yeah. it's making someone think about their role and who they are and what they used to love and what they currently love. And all of this seems to me to be, it, it's not so much a priority shift 
in terms of thinking about future priorities, it's priority memory, going back to one's past priorities. And it's such a, it's such a more personal approach. I mean, you're, you're engaging with them on an emotional level, um, treating them as a whole person. And that's what I got out of your book, reading the voices of the terrorists. You, you know, they're human beings. They're, they're not the other. They're not the, the bad person that the, the media portrays, you know, the, the one-dimensional terrorist. You're, you're treating them, um, and, and we're hearing their stories, and you can relate to them. You can see what, what their thought processes are, what they're thinking, what, what their values are. And, you know, you interviewed 55 jihadists, but you included life histories of five of them, more in-depth, and partial histories of a couple others, mm -hmm. uh, including uh, one who's still in the, hasn't left, and is still mm -hmm. radical. Since the book has gone to press, have any... Have any of uh, these jihadists uh, and former jihadists had any, have there been any major accomplishments or any experience, any setbacks? Yep. Um, one setback, one accomplishment. Um, BR, who um, is, um, was one of the life histories on POSO, um, he, um, when I left, when I left off in the story, he was in this uncertain point. He was trying to get money to start a, um, a print shop business, but it was so much of an investment that it required. He could never get the seed money. And so he starts thinking about what he wanted to do with his life. And he started, um, initially what was with some of his friends, um, in the um, community of um, the ex-Poso jihadists, they started a what they thought was going to be an ecotourism business, but the ecotourism business didn't take off. Mm. So this is where I leave him at the time at the end of the book. Um, and then in the past year, they turned the ecotourism business into a peace community called Rumakatu, and they made a film called Jalan Pulang, which oh. debuted a few weeks ago at um, the Jakarta National Library. Oh, wow. Um, they had some small showings in, um, they had small showings of Jalan Pulang in Poso, in Tentena, which is significant because that was where the Christian militias were who attacked them. And oh, here wow. they're going with this, this film. And they went to Tentana and they showed the film. And Jalan Pulang means the road home. So this is about, um, very much about their journey and about his journey. Um, and he directed the film. And have you had a chance to see it? Or did they? Were they? No, I haven't had the chance to see it. They're going to. They are subtitling it though. Oh, okay. And so. I'm, I'm so excited for them. It's absolutely fantastic. That is, that is great news. Yep, and uh, Rumakatu is, um, it's doing really wonderful things in like, they see it very much as building a peaceful poso, this, their work to build a peaceful poso. Um, by contrast, unfortunately, Reza, who is my recidivist, um, was arrested again for guns. Uh -huh. So this would mean um, the third time in prison and the second time for guns. That doesn't sound good. No, that doesn't. That's, well, and we don't. We haven't heard um, 
yet about how long or um, what specifically the charge was or how long he will be held. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's hope things can turn around for him. He, it's interesting. He is someone who he does not have the family support. Um, and while he has friends who are challenging prior held views, friends who are trying to encourage him to, um, to keep to the straight path, he doesn't have an alternative social network. He has a couple of people and it's not enough. And what Reza needs is that establishment of that alternative social network. Yeah. He also needs to develop a new skill set um, because guns are really his best skill set. And he doesn't sell guns because of his connection to the extremist movements. He sells guns because he genuinely likes guns. He comes from a gun family. Yeah. He'd be an NRA member if he lived here. Um, he just really likes guns. Mm -hmm. So he needs to develop an alternative skill set that's enough to pay the bills better than an Uber driver, which is what he was doing before. Huh. But it does, that is a perfect, I guess, a, a negative example that, that um, follows your argument. Yeah, and, and I hope it turns around. I hope this is the last time for him yeah. and that he is able to develop those. Wow. Really excited and proud to be showcasing your book, Why Terrorists Quit, The Disengagement of Indonesian Jihadists at the upcoming Asian Studies Conference. And we know that you're going. What are you uh, most interested in the conference, other than your new book? I am very interested in the panel, um, Islam and the Mediation of the Indonesian Public Sphere. Um, it's sponsored by the Indonesian and Timor-Leste Studies Committee um, with Janet Steele, Joel Kuypers, and Ari Setianingram uh, Pamunkas, um, also um, Ashkari Lunu. Nice, nice. So that is very exciting to me, um, especially Janet's paper on, I love this title, doesn't everyone support Sharia journalism and competing ethical obligations in Aceh, Indonesia? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sounds interesting. So that's what's exciting me. Also, the Rohingya panel. That is going to be absolutely fascinating. I think that that's a can't miss. Great, great. Well, thanks again for coming on. It was a pleasure talking with Julie, and uh, hope you have a great time at AAS and ISA. Thank you. You too. All right, you take care. You too. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Julie Chernoff Huang, author of Why Terrorists Quit. If you go online to our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter 09POD at the checkout, you can get 30% off Julie's new book. You have been listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. 